my collaborators from my political party, just some of them already in jail, some of them just waiting for their uh, for final court decision, also just um, uh, sitting in jail. That's why that's dangerous. And uh, and uh, of course, I didn't want just to live with this risk anymore. And me and my family, we left Russia uh, right after these events. Of course, we will have to uh, dismantle the overwhelming majority of, of this terrorist infrastructure because uh, we say that we want to see Gaza demilitarized. And once we eliminate Hamas, we don't want to see the resurgence of another terrorist group down the road that will use this infrastructure again. And you and I will have this conversation again. So it's it's a big, big challenge. Subsequently, we've learned that more than one teacher actually have held uh, hostages in their homes, including some who are parents of children um, who locked these hostages away without uh, adequate food, water, or medical care. Um, but of course, the big story in recent days, as you just said, um, were these dozen, 12 or so um, UNRWA employees who have been found to be directly involved in the Hamas massacre of October 7th. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Backstory. I'm Dana Lewis. This week, Russia. There is a new opposition leader who's been campaigning to run for president against Vladimir Putin. Does he have a chance? Will the Kremlin let him run? Well, it's likely no to both questions, but you never know. We speak to former Russian Prime Minister Mikhail Kasyanov on the election, the war in Ukraine, and talk of seizing over 30 billion in Russian assets abroad and giving them to Ukraine for weapons and rebuilding. But first, Gaza and Israel's war to unseat Hamas and bring home its hostages taken October 7th. Is Israel making progress in its goal to release hostages and destroy Hamas? In a moment, we'll talk to Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu's spokesperson, Tal Heinrich. And when I was in Gaza, the biggest charity organization was the UN Relief Workers Agency, UNRWA. Some of UNRWA's staff were involved in the attack on Israel and even held Israeli hostages. Now, funding for UNRWA is being held by a number of countries because why would they give money to an organization that appears to have worked hand in glove with a terrorist organization? It's a crisis for the UN, says former Jerusalem Post editor-in-chief Avi Mayer. But first, that interview with Tal. Tal Heinrich is a spokesperson for the Israeli Prime Minister's Office of uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu. She joins me now from New York. Hi, Tal. My pleasure to be joining you, Dana. Good to see you. Good to see you. Look, three weeks, if I can just begin with what's happening on the ground. Mm -hmm. Three weeks um, after the IDF says northern Gaza, Gaza is cleared, there's fighting in northern Gaza. What, what's happening there? It's obviously not cleared. And does this speak to the resilience of Hamas? You're correct. It's not clear of all terrorist elements and terrorist infrastructure. The IDF still has work to do there. But when we said that the area was clear, we didn't mean that it's 100% free of terrorist elements, but rather that Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad no longer function as an organized war machine in that area of the Gaza Strip. More, uh, It's more right now about sporadic attacks, if you will, as opposed to what we still have in the southern parts of Gaza, like in, in Khan Yunus, for example, and in the areas, the neighborhoods in, in the central part of the Gaza Strip, where still you have these organized battalions. But in terms of our progress, they are on the ground. Uh, according to the IDF's assessments, we have eliminated more than 9,000 terrorists, uh, arrested 2,300 
and uh, really uh, took out uh, the overwhelming majority of the of the Hamas battalions as an organized war machine. There's still much work to be done, uh, more so when you think about the terror infrastructure that we're finding there. Can you talk to the Wall Street Journal story, Street Journal story. Uh, where they're saying that, you know, maybe Israel's managed to get only 20 or 40 percent of tunnels, that there are so many more left. Um, you know, the, the the number 300 miles of tunnel is often kicked around, and I don't know how accurate it is, uh, but it's a it's a hell of a challenge trying to get down there, trying to eliminate Hamas. They're now talking about flooding some of those tunnels with water, the IDF, yet at the same time, you've got hostages there, and it's it's mission impossible. Well, obviously, the plight of the hostages is the top of minds in every decision-making uh, uh, progress, uh, you know, at the Central Command and also on the ground in Gaza. So uh, when we eliminate these tunnels, obviously, we have a certain intelligence and, and now our own assessment to make sure that um, they're not there. Um, of course, we will have to uh, dismantle the overwhelming majority of, of this terrorist infrastructure because uh, we say that we want to see Gaza demilitarized. And once we eliminate Hamas, we don't want to see the resurgence of another terrorist group down the road that will use this infrastructure again. And you and I will have this conversation again. So it's it's a big, big challenge. You know, uh, my, my colleague, Elon Levy, um, you're based in London, right? He says that the, the, the underground metro of Gaza is larger than, than the London metro, which is insane. I, I myself uh, went uh, with Elon to visit one of these big tunnels, the one that is just 400 meters um, away from the Eris border crossing in the northern part of the Gaza Strip. And, and Gaza, and Gaza, and, and Dana, I'm sorry, on the personal level, I wanted to tell you that I was standing there inside this massive tunnel, the one that a vehicle can drive through, and you see how fortified it is. You think of the iron, the 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 uh, cement, everything that all the resources, human human work, and 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 money that was invested in it. And, and you think this is insanity. They're so committed to this ideology and idea of obliterating Israel that they invest their effort and, and their everything in this instead of rebuilding themselves. And uh, I was there and I was thinking exactly uh, sort of what you said. Well, wow, this is huge. This is massive. And this is just one. It was just one. So so the question that I saw put to, to former Shin Bet chief Amy Ayalon today was, is Israel winning? Um, and he said, I, I can't say that because we don't know what the end game is. So how do you spell victory at this point? We spell victory uh, once we achieve the three goals that we have set forth for this operation, for this war that we didn't start and we didn't want. We said that Hamas must be eliminated um, as, as the ruling governance body in Gaza and as an organized war machine, as, as a military wing. Um, when exactly uh, this will happen and what does it entail? Will one terrorist uh, still be alive or we manage to eliminate all of them? This is a decision that will be, uh, of course, decided by the military press of the IDF, by our government. And, and we said that the hostages must come back home, all of them. That will be, um, of course, uh, one achievement. Let's let's and, hope uh, those poor people get out of there. And, I, and you you can only imagine what people have, have gone through over 100 days being held, abused, tortured. Some are already dead. So that, that brings us to this discussion that there's a hostage deal in the works. But Prime Minister Netanyahu, your boss, stood there yesterday and said, 
we're not going to release thousands of Palestinian prisoners, despite what the negotiations may be in Paris between, you know, uh, the USA and France and Qatar and others. We're not going to release thousands of, of terrorists. Who was he speaking to there? It sounds like he, he was almost speaking to the Americans saying, don't pressure us into a deal that, that we can't accept. Well, when the prime minister of Israel is speaking right now at the height of a war, I guess he's speaking to everyone around the world, not only Israelis, but I can tell you who he was speaking to today, and that is um, families of, of hostages. And he told them that um, the Israeli government, he himself personally, they're doing everything possible um, to, uh, you know, examine every possible avenue to bring to the release potentially of more hostages. Now, we know that what created the conditions back in November, Dana, was the military pressure that we exerted on Hamas on the ground. We were hitting them very, very hard. And the, the terrorists on the ground, they wanted a breather. And, and so we had this framework which saw the release of some of the hostages. It has to be a combination of the diplomatic avenue that we don't expand on uh, for very obvious reasons. You know, we, we don't really discuss these terms uh, openly, publicly, because uh, these are sensitive issues. Human lives hang in the balance. Um, but we are really doing everything possible to create the conditions, to create another framework that will see the release of more hostages. And um, you're right, we heard from the accounts of hostages who came back in November after 50 days or so in captivity. And, and it's unbelievable to try to imagine what these who are still there for more than double the time are, are suffering through, uh, including sexual abuse that we know for certain is taking place there with some of the female hostages, because that's what one of the female hostages who came back told us. Will you comment happened. on the fact that at least one of those hostages, maybe more, were not only taken by members of UNRWA, the, the UN Relief Workers Agency, but in fact, at least one of them that was released, I think among that 50, came back and told stories about how he was held by an UNRWA teacher, um, how he, you know, he wasn't fed, he was held in horrible conditions. And now you have revelations that there's at least a dozen UNRWA employees were involved in the, the October 7th uh, terror attack inside Israel of, of killing people, of taking hostages. This is outrageous. It's, it's. I mean, uh, to people around the world, many of them say, well, this is unbelievable. But to Israelis, this is um, nothing but, you know, uh, a surprise. Uh, Israelis have been have been used to it, have been uh, speaking about it for years, how UNRWA is uh, somewhat in bed with terrorism and preaches to terrorism in UNRWA schools. You know that a, a telegram group of 3,000 UNRWA teachers celebrated the massacre. You had teachers that Israel uh, passed this information on to the UN agency um, who, who participated as part of, of the Hamas massacre. They crossed into Israel. Uh, some of them, uh, the ones who weren't in Israel, helped Hamas uh, you know, secure ammunitions for the attack and secure logistics for the attack. One of them was uh, was involved in kidnapping a body of a soldier, another of a kidnapping of a hostage. So we know of at least two hostages right now um, who were held by UNRWA people. And, and uh, you know, it's it's not a, a bug in the system. It's a feature of this system. And, and the, the mere existence of UNRWA is flawed to, to begin with, Dana. Uh, the fact that this agency exists in an unprecedented way dedicated to the so-called Palestinian refugee uh, problem, which in its essence, if you boil it down, the existence of UNRWA is, is basically to put a question mark over the existence of Israel.
to keep Israel as some temporary entity in the mind of Palestinians by telling them generation after generation, you are refugees of wars that you started. And until, until when? Until Israel will cease to exist. So UNRWA is flawed on so many different levels, but really um, what we revealed was just the tip of the iceberg. Well, I know UNRWA is also in charge of giving out food and water and support for UNRWA eroding now, you know, it comes at an impossible critical time. And I and I guess there'll be a lot of discussion about if you replace UNRWA, what do you replace it with? But very quickly before I let you go, you know, Hamas has gained popularity, popularity in the West Bank, as has Islamic Jihad. There are great fears uh, by the Israeli security establishment of attacks that can occur just like the one October the 7th from Gaza into Israel could happen from the West Bank into Israel. Um, are, are you worried at the prime minister's office that, that you know, the threat is increasing? And how do you stop this popularity of Hamas in the West Bank now? And, and where is Fatah? Where are the moderates? That is a very good question, because when you look at internal uh, Palestinian polling of their own population, not only in Gaza, but also in the West Bank, you see that in the West Bank, 85 um, percent of Palestinians support the October 7th atrocities. They support Hamas's doing, um, which really makes you, uh, you know, question, think of, of what the, the future could be like. And this is why we say that down the road, once Hamas is eliminated, we want to see Gaza demilitarized, but also the Palestinian society as a whole, not only in Gaza, but also in the West Bank, de-radicalized. Because without that, without that, and you're in Europe, so you you you, you know better, without de-radicalization of, of extreme elements in the society, it, we can't have peace. We can't. And, and and you know, you've seen, you reported that Israel has made peace with many other Arab nations because conditions on the ground uh, were right for it when the timing was right. But processes have to take place. And, and unfortunately, some of these processes take time. But we hope that yeah. once we eliminate Hamas and we deal terrorism such a major blow as it deserves, um, moderate voices will fill in the vacuum and that the Palestinians would understand that terrorism will always be a dead end. So why choosing it? It was a feature of the Oslo Accords, Tal, and uh, you know many believe that even with the best peace process in place, unless you de-radicalize Palestinians and stop celebrating bus bombings and suicide attacks, it, the violence would never stop, and it never did. And Hamas jumped right in there and led led that charge in terms of terrorist attacks in Israel. So what what you speak about, you know, has has been just isn't looking forward, but it's it's also le leaning back and looking at what went wrong also in in, in the nineties. So Tal Heinrich, spokesman for the Israeli Prime Minister's Office. Tal, good to talk to you. Thank you so much, Dana. Avi Mayer is the former editor-in-chief of the Jerusalem Post, and he joins me now from Jerusalem. Avi, nice to meet you. Good to meet you as well. Look, this controversy with UNRWA, uh, Canada, the U.S. Uh, have paused funding to UNRWA, so have seven other countries. The, I think as we count now, UK, Australia, Italy, Germany, the Netherlands, Switzerland, Finland have taken similar action. Um, is it fair or is this a slight overreaction right now? Look, UNRWA has been a problem for many years. Uh, some would say that it dates back to 
uh, its very foundation in the aftermath of Israel's War of Independence in 1949, when it was granted this mandate that is quite different than that of the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, whereas the UNHCR is tasked with the resettlement of refugees and essentially ending the refugee status, UNRWA exists to perpetuate the refugee status of those Palestinians who it serves, um, which is why you've seen the number of Palestinian refugees or people classified as Palestinian refugees balloon over the past 75 years to millions and millions around the world, including those who required citizenship in their current places of residence. Um, over the past 20 years or so, various different organizations have raised concerns about all sorts of ties between UNRWA and terrorist groups. Um, as well as UNRWA's own operations, which are viewed as being tainted by incitement to violence, um, the delegitimization of Israel's right to exist, anti-Semitic tropes, and so on and so forth. Um, for many years, there have been all sorts of charges about UNRWA's ties to Hamas, um, that it can only operate in Gaza because it's in cahoots with Hamas in many respects, that many of its employees are in fact Hamas members. Um, and in fact, that has come to a head during the current conflict. Um, just a few weeks ago, um, when I was still at the Jerusalem Post, we published a report that was first uh, circulated by an Israeli journalist named yeah. Almog Boker, um, that one of the hostages in Gaza... If, if I can jump in, because you've packed a lot in there, but that that's really that post that you put up is what led me to ask you for the interview, mm -hmm. because you wrote that um, an Israeli who had been held hostage in Gaza, he was the captive of a teacher employed by UNRWA, um, and that UNRWA later on turned around and slammed your report at the Jerusalem Post, uh, you know, essentially saying it was ungrounded, unfounded, how dare you? What did they say to you? They said exactly that, um, that they had not been presented with evidence, that these are unsubstantiated allegations, and they requested very strongly that we right. remove the report from our website. You I, got it wrong. Not comply. You, you got um, it wrong because you only said there was one. Right, exactly. Fact, at the time, we only fact, knew of one. There's now at least a dozen UNRWA employees that have been named, uh, and that has been provided uh, to the to U.S. to the White House as well as as a number of countries. So you didn't get it wrong, but you 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 spoke about one case, and I know that the, uh, I'm I'm I shouldn't I shouldn't inject any humor in what is a very serious situation. But the fact is that you know you you uh, in in fact they got off pretty lightly in your story compared to what's come out now. Yeah, I mean, look, subsequently, we've learned that more than one teacher actually have held uh, hostages in their homes, including some who are parents of children, um, who locked these hostages away without uh, adequate food, water, or medical care. Um, but of course, the big story in recent days, as you just said, um, were these dozen, 12 or so um, UNRWA employees who have been found to be directly involved in the Hamas massacre of October 7th. Um, about half of them are themselves teachers, which is astounding when you think about it. Um, others have other roles within the organization, um, but they played an active role in kidnapping, massacring, um, transferring weapons to Hamas on the day of, uh, of the massacre. Um, and one report that just came out a short while ago by the Wall Street Journal said that according to an intelligence estimate, about one in 10 UNRWA employees in Gaza are somehow linked to terrorist organizations. That's about 1,200 people. So in the aftermath of the first revelation about the 12, we were hearing many critics saying, you know, how could you judge an entire organization based on the actions of only 12 people? Here we see we're talking about 1,200 people 
which is about one out of every 10 employees, that is an organization that is entirely compromised and requires substantive reform. So I, I want to explore that a little bit with you. I mean, the U.S. National Security Spokesman John Kirby said today it's it's serious, but you shouldn't impugn the character of the characters of 10,000 employees across the region that UNRWA is operating in. Look, uh, that is certainly Admiral Kirby's prerogative. I, I think the situation is much deeper than that. And we've known it for many, many years. This is an organization that is tainted from the very core of its mandate. Um, its previous uh, uh, director has said explicitly that it has a political mandate and that you know we can't do anything about it. We just operate within the confines of that mandate. But if the mandate itself is wrong, if it is just perpetuating the problem, which is what it's doing, then perhaps the mandate needs to change or the organization needs to be dismantled and the refugees handed over to the UN High Commissioner for Refugees and their status made equal to the refugees of any country around the world. I think that is probably what we need to explore, perhaps not at this moment when UNRWA is doing important work in some respect in Gaza, caring for the humanitarian needs of the Palestinian population there. But at some point in the future, a reckoning must come and the organization needs to either reform or be totally dismantled and be absorbed into another What's the alternative? I mean, I've been to Gaza hundreds of times as a correspondent over the years. I'm sure you've probably been there. The the UNRWA hands out, you know, I've I've seen them handing out, you know, water and powdered milk and rice. And I mean, they're, they're a frontline aid agency. They are in an environment which is run by Hamas, um, obviously some people are going to get into the organization um, no matter how good your screening is. But, But I don't want to give them the benefit of the doubt either. And I want to ask you, do you think that they completely not only failed in that respect, but turned a blind eye to what was happening in their organization, how deep Hamas was infiltrating the organization, using the organization maybe um, as as a front and to protect uh, the, the Hamas military wing. Look, according to former UNRWA officials, there are no pre-employment screening procedures in place. They essentially None. will hire pretty much anyone. Um, and so, yes, we know as a matter of fact, up until this point, and this was admitted by former directors of the organization that there were Hamas members. Now we know that it's at least one in every 10 uh, members of their team who are somehow affiliated with either Hamas, Islamic Jihad, or other terrorist organizations. That is profound. That is an organization that has a very deep set problem. Um, And so you ask what the alternative is. I think the alternative is very clear. Move the Palestinian refugee problem to the UN High Commissioner of Refugees, which deals with every other refugee case around the world. The Palestinians are the only group that what has would that their do? own. What would that do? I'm sorry, what's that? What would that do if you move well, the that? UN High Commissioner, the UN High Commissioner of Refugees is an organization that has a, a budget in the billions that deals with millions upon millions of refugees around the world, and it simply is not tainted in the same way that UNRWA is. It is an organization that is unfortunately tainted to the core. It has been compromised for many, many years, and it simply needs to either reform and do so seriously with an independent investigation, looking into what all those problems are and how they can be addressed, or dismantled and absorbed into you and High Commissioner of Refugees. I don't see an alternative. Where do you think we're headed right now? I mean, in Jerusalem, there was a conference last night that had a lot of right-wing members of Netanyahu's uh, uh, cabinet in there, including uh, uh, Ben Gvir, who's, you know, former Kach, member and, uh, um, you know, they were dancing around the idea that they relocate Palestinians out of Gaza. I mean, is that not beyond extreme 
Do Israelis support that, do you think? Or do you think that that is gaining momentum within Israel? I think the overwhelming majority of Israelis are horrified by the notion of any return to Gaza on a permanent basis. The notion of resettling Jews in Gaza, I think, is one that is entirely foreign to the vast majority of Israelis. What you saw at that really unfortunate conference uh, in Jerusalem last night, which, as you said, was indeed attended by members of this government, was a display of extremism that is highly unrepresentative of Israeli society. What Israelis want is to live in peace and security. That can only be achieved when the hostages are brought home and Hamas's capacity to ever carry out a massacre like October the 7th is dismantled. That is the goal here. The goal is not to repopulate Gaza, and I hope that we're able to achieve those goals very soon. How does it end? Is it military reoccupation of Gaza? I mean, if you don't bring settlers back, is it is it continued military occupation of, of Gaza, which may go on for years? And do you, like behind the scenes, what are you hearing? Do you think that there is momentum for an international effort now to bring about some kind of Palestinian self-rule in in Gaza that will replace the, the extremist group Hamas and get, get them out of them? Look, there are various proposals being floated at this time. Uh, from what I'm hearing, it is likely there will be some kind of Israeli presence in Gaza, at least till the end of the current year, until the end of 2024. It will not look the way it does now. There will probably be far fewer troops actually on the ground, but Israel will maintain the capacity to come in and deal with terrorist activity as it resurfaces, as it almost certainly will. Um, as for longer-term arrangements, we've heard various conversations about a multinational force, perhaps populated by Arab states in the Gulf coming in and taking responsibility for security of that territory. But yes, certainly we would want to see some kind of Palestinian self-rule reemerge in that territory, one that is not tainted by terrorism like Hamas or by association with terrorism as the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank currently is. What that looks like remains to be seen. There are various different proposals floating about. We certainly hope that that's something that can be effectuated as soon as possible. Yeah, I mean, what, what a big remain to be seen chapter that still has to be written, right? So uh, anyway, Avi Mayer, the former editor-in-chief of Jerusalem Post, great to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. All right, Mikhail Kasyanov is a former prime minister of Russia, and now he lives in exile uh, in Europe. And Mikhail, welcome. I use that term, and you can correct me, in exile, um, sort of precariously, because you left Russia willingly when the war happened in Ukraine, but now you probably cannot go back. Uh, absolutely, I cannot go back. That's why just I left Russia uh, when they started to adopt just legislation uh, under which they can put in jail just people for criticism. And we have a number of examples and uh, my collaborators from my political party, just some of them already in jail, some of them just waiting for the uh, for final court decision, also just um, uh, sitting in jail. That's why that's dangerous. And, uh, and uh, of course, I didn't want just to live with this risk anymore. And me and my family, we left Russia uh, right after these events. It has to be emotional. I mean, you're a patriot. You worked next to the president. I mean, you worked in the Kremlin. You worked for the country. You rose to one of the highest ranks in terms of the uh, the, the 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 political um, the the political uh, you know uh, landscape in Russia. Um, you then fought as an opposition person. Suddenly, to be saying that you're a foreign 
agent and cannot go back to your country. Um, These are dark days. That's absolutely strange. And uh, it took them a year to decide whether to name me as a foreign agent or not, because just there was the information that even in September last year, I mean, 2022, where already just my name was put for consideration. And it took them a year to make a decision whether maybe they, they were waiting permission of uh, Putin so that whether it's possible to name former prime minister who worked with Putin first his first term just as a foreign agent. That is absolutely strange. Of course, foreign agent, that is some kind of um, uh, bazaar. And um, just because just, you know, these people in the power, uh, Putin's team, if we can call the, the team, uh, the circle, uh, they believe that uh, critics of Putin's regime could be the crazy people or foreign agent. That's what they chosen for me, just foreign agent. <laughs> yeah, and that's what already just uh, more than 200 people and uh, more than uh, 300 of different organizations named as foreign agent, just for criticism of Putin, for criticism of the war. Yes, they're, they're, they're correct. I'm condemning the war. I'm criticizing Putin. Just I walk I'm part of um, uh, anti Russian anti war committee. That's what they also in, uh, just incriminating me that it is dangerous organization because we're against the war. All these facts. And uh, as a result, just a strange, strange name, but it is it is the fact. The law they they produce this way that foreign agent that is we are not foreign agents we're agent of our country of our motherland as i said we're we're of course the patriots of our country and would like much better uh, we're good for the country but it's good for the country in putin's mind that's completely different yeah, his people believe that uh, the, 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 their enrichment and uh, their ruling and they keep the power, that is the good for the country, but uh, not as us uh, and other many millions of Russians who believe that we should live in a prosperous, uh, I would say, civilized country, part of Europe. Do you know Boris Nadezhdin, who is now running, attempting to run against Putin for president? And what would you say about him? Oh, what I can say, just the most important thing, just what I have to stress, that he continued to keep anti-war position and openly discussing this and describing this, not in a, in a very, I would say, direct way, but very clear, very clear with the with the more delicate manner of describing this as a, as a crucial mistake or something like that. Uh, and uh, I think, and I'm uh, almost sure that he will not be registered for, for the second part of the run, uh, because of this position, because just people uh, would like would like alternative. They don't know who Nadezhdin is about, but they would like to vote for the person, whatever person is, who against the war, who wanted to, who wants to stop this war as soon as possible. Nadezhdin right now represents this opinion. That's why there is a growing popularity of him. And uh, I am sure that they will not, I mean, Kremlin, Putin will not take this risk to register him for the final run, uh, because just people could uh, definitely would could go to the to the uh, voting stations and and uh, and uh, put their ballot, but of course the result will be uh, predictable. Putin would win, but the risk that people and a lot of people, including many officers, military officers, and uh, from the police, they would understand they voted against that. 
but result result uh, could appear just as Putin wanted. That would create a, a public risk and uh, a risk of of uh, I would say um, demonstrations, protests on the streets. I don't think Putin would take this risk. That's why Nadezhda will not be registered. Do you think it was a mistake by the Kremlin to let him get so far now because it's become quite public, or do you think that? They wanted to create the atmosphere of a of a democracy, even though we know that these elections are not democratic. That uh, they wanted to create atmosphere of democracy, but they don't care much about that. But um, in fact, uh, there was nothing um, as uh, I would say potential uh, potential uh, methods to to cut him from from on this stage, just simply to put in jail just for criticism. But they did they didn't do this. And they, they wanted that some kind of landscape to, to appear that uh, many people uh, and that they would like the, the outcome, outcome just visiting, just polling stations would, would, would be high. That's why they, they, they're thinking this way. They didn't know that um, uh, Nadezhda will continue to have such anti-war position and people can, would continue to support and uh, demonstrating their will to put signature for, for his registration. And I think that is already just they, they run too far. You think it's getting away on them, that it's getting out of control for them? Yeah, not getting out of control, but much more difficult for them and much more risky for them as they expected. What happened to you when you tried to run for president? Because you were very organized and you you traveled the country. uh, You had a real grassroots organization. uh, Parnas, and you, you, you know, you, you had local election uh, offices. I mean, t- tell me from your experience, what do they do to you to stop you? Yeah, correct. And that time, that was a completely different time. It was uh, uh, almost democracy existed, and at that time, we all believed that there there was a chance. There was a chance to 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 change, not to allow. Putin to go this route, what we come now, just no, nobody could expect at that time that we, where, where we, could, we could, could, could come. But in that time, yeah, there was, there was, uh, of course, as you correctly mentioned, that um, political group, political party just was organized and we were prepared for this collecting the signatures and I travel all over the country. But they didn't expect, the Kremlin, they didn't expect that uh, popularity, my popularity would um, start to raise so rapidly within one month or Collegian signature from my my rating was six percent, and one month it was eighteen, and they understood that. And that time was not not Putin, but Medvedev was running from from Putin's team, and at that time just was absolutely dangerous, and it was a great risk. And I believe just we could we potentially could have could have uh, win those elections, won those elections uh, as a general support basis on the on a basis on the basis on the general support. It didn't happen. They caught me on that stage. What uh, as they going to do this? They, with... they tried to say what the, the signatures weren't valid. The people who supported you were were not real people. Fictitious signatures. I mean, they they did oh, everything they, they, they could. Right? There were two million signatures, and they say hundred seventy they don't like, and out of this hundred seventy, thirty five, three five. They believed it was not put by real people, but it was it was just uh, the just technical reason. Of, but of course, everybody uh, knows what uh, actual uh, political grounds were for that. Yeah. You're sitting in the in in one of the Baltic countries, um, w- which sit in great fear 
uh, of what's happening in Ukraine right now, that they believe uh, that Europe and America are going way too slow on weapon supplies, that we're reaching a, a, a dangerous precipice where Russia will continue, um, just not in eastern Ukraine, but they will threaten other sort of NATO frontline countries. What, what is the mood where you are and what do you believe, if you were to take a snapshot historically of where you think we are and where we're going, what would you say? Uh, you you are correct that in terms of Baltic states, people here and the politicians in particular are just very much concerned about, about that because they understand how just um, uh, um, how Putin hates uh, these countries and the people of these countries. And that's why just, of course, they have all reasons to think this way, that uh, if Ukraine uh, will be defeated, it means just next step would be Baltic states, and uh, they they don't want uh, they don't want to be unprepared. That's why just they very nervous and asking other NATO members to support them. And I think just the NATO members just doing this. Uh, but in general, talking about Ukraine, but I believe that all these all these I would say uh, mass which we take. I don't think just we uh, correct correct what, but what was going on in the US right now, just in terms of in terms of um, not agreeing on um, on uh, uh, adoption adoption of the support or package uh, the support for Ukraine. But I know I talked to politicians of both countries then just half a year ago, and all of them just there is a bipartisan consensus on the support of Ukraine. But internal problems, internal disagreements, just blocking this support but unfortunately it has already have has an effect on uh, on the situation in the front in ukraine ukraine and all of course the the, the information and uh, i would say um, the landscape uh, provides that some kind of fatigue come and European countries just will not be so actively in support. But I talked recently to European politicians and there is also absolutely great consensus and the readiness to continue support Ukraine. That's what that's what we need right now as soon as possible. Decision, positive decision in the US. I'd like to believe it will be soon, although I disappointed that that didn't happen in December. I thought in, uh, the, as soon as the Congress will re reintegrate just there, there the process now it didn't happen but i i'd like to believe they they will make the decision soon european union on the first of february going to make this decision too and i like to believe that uh, ukraine would feel just very solid grounds and continue to defend themselves their sovereignty because what will putin do do you think i mean do, do you think he's content to keep eastern ukraine maybe um some expansion along the Black Sea coast, or do you, do you think that his goals are much broader than that? Uh, there was, of course, much broader. The goals were uh, were much much broader. But right now, I think just Putin already switched the war for war and attrition. He managed during one year to switch Russian economy on the Mediterranean stance. And in fact, and in fact, just um, uh, those uh, production facilities which were, were were left for 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 decades after Soviet Union collapse of the Soviet Union, now just they, they reintegrated all those production and they 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 produce a lot of ammunition, 
or maybe not on, on, on such a, I would say, high-tech quality, but that is a lot of things, and it's 10 times um, uh, quantity, 10, 10 times bigger than Ukraine can use just right now. That's why just they believe that uh, uh, competition of potentials, uh, economic potentials and human potentials, Putin, he believes that he would win. Uh, that what that what also uh, he believed that fatigue already come and just expecting that um, uh, Donald Trump will win will win elections and then just reconsider attitude to supporting Ukraine. I think all these factors, combination of these factors, and he will wait. I don't think that he is going to have another offensive operation in spring, as some people say, uh, because just he already have also facing internal problems and there will be more growing problems in the economy and financial system in Russia. But of course, he believes that he will win the war, uh, war of, of attrition, competition of uh, competition of of, um, uh, potentials that he believes that West uh, will fed up of supporting and allocating so much money and um, uh, sooner or later they will press Ukraine to sit down and to accept Putin's terms of capitulation. What do your European you know contacts you I know you talk to politicians a lot and you talk to people in the EU what do, what do they say about a possible, uh, re-election of Donald Trump as president and the dangers to uh, not only Ukraine but a, a wider NATO uh, and European Union are and and what are they doing to prepare for that? Do you, do you think that they are preparing for a Trump presidency as best they can, whether that be domestic weapons production or will they continue to support Ukraine and go it alone, just just Europe and Ukraine if the U.S. Uh. pulls back? That's an interesting question, but it is, of course, better to ask those European politicians. But uh, uh, my impression is that, of course, they are very much concerned about that. Uh, knowing what happened in the past, especially relations with the European Union and all the sanctions and quotas, etc., and barriers in trade, and also problems with in NATO. Uh, that's what, uh, of course, uh, people already know just how to how to tackle these problems here. But of course, talking about Ukraine, that's the most important issue. Uh, European Union without United States would not be would not be capable to support for the such extent so that Ukraine could win this battle. Uh, but nevertheless, I believe, and the European politicians also believe that uh, if even Trump, but assuming that Trump is a president, but in any case, in any case, he couldn't um, he couldn't uh, have a consensus and to get just everything settled in Congress. Uh, uh, but as I said, bipartisan consensus of support Ukraine um, exists and it's strong. This, but the only the, the technicalities. But I think that will be that will be the uh, adjustment somehow we will see a lot of uh, negative talks and a lot of populistic talks but uh, that will create delays that will create a problem for ukraine but in general terms i think i think that would be um, maybe not not a such scale and not such direct uh, way support as uh, current administration provides for but i think that will be in any case uh, Transatlantic unity continued to exist in terms of supporting Ukraine. Last question to you. Um, there have been a lot of people campaigning, especially you know people like Bill Browder and others, uh, campaigning for Russian assets that were frozen, uh, both in the U.S. and in Europe, 
to simply be seized now and turned over to Ukraine, especially given the fact that there are the delays in funding coming from the EU and coming from the US. Do you think there's a danger in doing that or that's a wise that would be a wise decision to turn over frozen Russian assets in European and American banks to the, the Ukrainians? There are two types of those assets. One of them private assets, I mean, just on different, uh, call them oligarchs or whatever, billionaires, whatever stuff here. Yeah? It, it is uh, completely different things that uh, that that should not be seized of in, in any case in terms of just um, because they don't um, they don't condemn the war. That should be different consideration because it's private property. That's untouchable thing for existing of uh, the uh, the world order existing right now. And that should be consideration individual basis on um, what is our generation, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They, I think, they're doing this. But other part of assets, the central bank, international reserve, central bank, three hundred billion US dollar. That is a different thing. That's what discussion is going on about that. The, the main problem, which what I expect now and see, of course, everyone is uh, concerned concerned about just whether these such a step, if those assets are seized, uh, whether it's create a problem of destroying the whole financial system existing right now. IMF, World Bank, all this uh, situation, just different organizations with supporting countries, etc. Because since today, yeah. and, and also. Also, the whole monetary system of of seeking haven in the U.S. dollar suddenly. So yeah. that, that's what I, that's what I also mean about that too. Yeah, that's what that that is. The since since this time, it, it never happened. Never happened. If you should it now. It could it could destroy it could destroy the whole the whole and the uh, mental attitude for this to this monetary system. But uh, what it could be used, and I believe just they're trying to to work out the model, just to to have it as a pledge for the potential loans to Ukraine, so that for reconstruction of the economy and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But then on the later stage, when um, uh, Ukraine wins and Putin defeated, and that will be a different discussion. But right now, I think there will not be not uh, possible to have such a such a tough step and to seize these assets and to create a precedent, which will be widely discussed in the whole world and uh, would create a negative effect for international monetary system. You're not a fan of doing it. Uh, I'm, I'm, it's not, not, the, not, not the right question. I'm uh, just, we, I see the problems. I see the problems. I don't want the the world order will will be will be will be I would say destroyed. Putin already tried to destroy just international security system. He already just on this. But if we already just to add to them destroyment of, of financial system, that what will will have in the end and this world building everything in the beginning and from the stretch that will be very difficult that will be mess uh, in, the, in the whole world we already see just some problems in the middle east and uh, ukraine russia and uh, just other in africa etc cetera, etc cetera. but where we can end up that is difficult difficult uh, way prime minister mikhail kasyanov always good to talk to you sir thank you so much thank you Dana. and that's our backstory this week share the podcast if you like it, and we'll bring you more. I'm Dana Lewis. Thanks for listening to Backstory, and I'll talk to you again soon.